0: Welcome to the Why Invest Podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, I've said it before, but the fun part of hosting this podcast is meeting people who are incredibly passionate about what they do. And my guest this week falls into that category. He was awesome. His name is Hugh Yarrow. He's the founder of Node Investment, which is a long-only global equity investment manager based in Oxfordshire. We discuss how Hugh got into the industry, his formative years at Rathbones why he started his company, his approach to investment and the areas of the market that he's most excited about. He really was a great guest. He's clearly an incredibly thoughtful investment manager and I think you'll learn a lot from this episode. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Hugh Yarrow, welcome to the podcast. Hugh, how did you start your career? Well, uh, investment's always been sort of
1: something that's been around for me from quite a young age my father actually introduced me to it I didn't know anyone else who worked in financial services and he actually started out as a beekeeper so ended up in investment in the 1980s but that's another story so when I was sort of seven eight nine I actually remember him drawing on logarithmic graph paper the old sort of paper style where you'd look at the prices in the financial times and I'd help him update the graphs and you put the dot on the chart um, for that week, which makes me feel quite old, Doug, to be honest. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) You really are showing your age, actually.
1: (laughs) This sort of concept of shares and equity investment has, has been around. And then I studied philosophy and math at Edinburgh University, graduated in 2002, and hadn't had my heart set on investment management, but found a job as a trainee unit trust manager at
0: Rathbones. And that was sort of where my career began. And then at what point did you start Evenload and what were you trying to do? What was the value proposition of Evenload?
1: So we started Evenload in, in 2009 and I started it with my brother-in-law, Ben Peters. Um, and I, th- I mean, I'd been at Rathbones for for seven years and I, I had a very enjoyable experience at Rathbones. We saw a huge number of companies, so very much fundamental business analysts and We'd often see two or three company management teams a day, you know, we'd, we'd see them in the office, we'd go and visit them at their factories and warehouses and offices. So very good way of sort of building up a library of different business models and management styles and strategies, etc. And I also read an awful lot on investment. I love reading and not just investment. I think it's one of the great things about fund management is it's very multidisciplinary. So, it, Encompasses spheres that include investment and finance and accounting, but also obviously economics and business and actually sort of social trends and science and innovation, but also importantly, the sort of psychology of the market is, is you know, behavioral finance, behavioral psychology. And I think that some formative experience made me realize that there are different ways you can invest. And I think my preference, and I'm, I'm not saying that, that there are lots of different ways to invest successfully over the long term. Um, I think you have to find an approach that you're comfortable with and, and that you feel will work for you over the long term and you can sort of deliver consistently. And for us at Evenload, it's very much about business perspective investing. So this concept that you know, a share is a fractional stake in a real company. And over the long term, if that business fundamentally performs well and is able to grow its per share, free cash flow and dividends over time, then the share price will wobble around in the short term for lots of different reasons. But it will ultimately follow the fundamental performance of the business as long as you didn't buy it on an incredibly expensive valuation and bought it on a sensible valuation to start with. So we... Set up in 2009 in a converted barn in West Oxfordshire, which is where we're based. Uh, We're now a team of 23. And I think the philosophy really has been unchanged since the start. We wanted to invest our own savings and co-invest the savings in a very consistent long term way and explain to our clients what we were doing as clearly as possible. I think really the philosophy is we want to be the investment management company that we would want to put our savings in over the long term if we weren't professionals in the industry. So part of that's having the consistent approach, part of that's communicating well, and part of that is being there You know, over time. I mean, equity investment is, it really should always be a long-term endeavour, five years plus. And if I ever have a friend who comes and asks me, you know, I've got some sort of money to money hanging around, should I put it in the stock market or invest it in your fund? My question is always, might you need this money back within the next three to five years? And and if they think they do, then they shouldn't be investing in shares. So I think you need to match
0: that time horizon with the way you think about the business too. And take me back to that moment when you decided to sort of break free from Rathbone and sort of punch out on your own. What was that, the sort of Emotional roller coaster, like as you went from probably kind of consistent, steady income to starting something from scratch. It was sort of two thousand and nine, so it was
1: during the great financial crisis, and it actually just felt like a very natural decision at the time. Albeit it was in quite a sort of turbulent time, but I think it felt like quite a good time to be starting a new equity strategy and we were confident in what we were doing over the long term and we we're very much seeing it as a longer term project and from a personal perspective my wife Jess and I had just had our first child our son and we were both sort of live out in the countryside and grew up in the countryside so it felt like a nice thing to be doing to me from a personal perspective as well moving out of London so sort of all the stars aligned and it all came together but it, it as you say it was a big move and we started with a very small fund. It was less than a million when we launched the fund in October 2009. So that was the original even load income flagship fund. And it did take a long time to build up, you know, relationships with, with clients and um, build the fund up over time. And we did know it was going to take time when we started. But there, you know, starting a new fund management business, you do have to be very patient because you, the only way that you can generate a track record over time and build up a sort of relationship with clients is by grinding it out over the years.
0: Staying on that point when you launched the firm, and you've talked a little bit about some of your philosophical points, and it sounds like you may have been a sort of student of Buffett and Munger, and um, taking a long term approach to capital allocation. When you set up Evenload, what were your non-negotiables? Where were your lines in the sand to say, this is who we are, and this is what you get when you come to us, as opposed to going to some of the bigger and bold bracket investment managers?
1: Well, I think we wanted to be very focused on the investment strategy and communicate that very clearly to clients. So I think, you know, the circle of competence is is important in investment. I'm sure we can get on to the process, but we have a pretty disciplined way about in, in terms of the way we invest. And you know, that means that there's lots of companies that we don't invest in. And we're not saying they're bad investments, but we're just being very clear about the way that we will invest over the long term. I think the other thing is just from a client perspective we didn't want to run the business to hit sort of financial targets or you know it's, it's never been a asset gathering business it's always very much been about delivering a service for clients thinking about the clients first and any decisions that we've made about the business has very much been driven from that perspective and i think that is something that as a sort of smaller company we're employee owned you know we are taking a long-term view we are able to sort of take a step back and always think on in the best interest of clients rather than say short-term financial targets for the business itself.
0: And so moving on to your investment process, how do you um, see the world and how do you sort of sift through what is quite a large global equity universe? And you know, to use your phrase, what what is your circle of competence?
1: Yeah. So going back to the business perspective approach, in a way, the longer your time horizon, the more your total return in a share will tend towards the performance of the company. So, for instance, if you buy a company on a 3% dividend yield today and it can grow that dividend at 10% per annum, if you hold it for 20 years, your capital return is likely to be roughly 10%. It will be exactly 10% if it's on a 3% dividend yield in at the end of that 20-year period, if it's on a 25 or a 3.5% dividend yield, it might be a slightly higher or lower return. But the longer that time horizon, the less that valuation change will matter. And we do run to old-fashioned income and growth funds. We are in the process of launching a global equity fund, which is a very similar process, but looking at cash flow, not necessarily with that cash flow dropping out as a dividend at the end. But the, the, the basic approach is the same for all three funds, we're looking for companies which we think can grow their free cash flow, so their cash generation per year at a good rate over time, but also with the income funds can pay, you know can generate good free cash flow today and pay out a dividend today as well. And we're looking specifically for a couple of quantitative factors, so capital light businesses where they don't have to reinvest too much of their cash flow each year back in the business, so you get that cash flow today. Um, but also businesses that generate a high return on investment. So that cash that's getting reinvested back in the business can compound up over time. And obviously, that lays the foundation stones for the future growth in the free cash flow. So that's a slightly dry technical definition of what we do. But in terms of more qualitatively, what type of businesses tend to have those economics, they tend to be businesses which have what you might call an economic moat. So it's normally a network of intangible assets that you know, are quite difficult to replicate if you were trying to start up a business from scratch to compete with that business. And that tends to lead to those higher returns on capital, which are harder to erode in terms of the competitive threats to that business. And I think, you know, those intangibles can be, you know, anything from brands, sort of the reputation of the business, the R&D expertise of the business that's built up over time, how embedded the company is with the customer how high the switching costs are for the customer i think increasingly in the sort of digital era you know proprietary data and data analytics has become increasingly important too so we sort of analyze and, and things like distribution networks can be important so we analyze all the sort of intangibles around a company and really the thought experiment there is if you know doug if you were starting a company from scratch and you had a lot of capital um, to do that with how easy would it be for you to start competing with this business? And obviously the harder that is, the stronger that the competitive position of that company can be. And then I think the other point in terms of what we're looking for for constituents of our, our investable universe is companies where they sell products or services that the customer doesn't buy primarily on price. So obviously price is always going to be a factor, but we tend to find that if price isn't the main factor and things like quality and reputation are more important. And also, if the product or service is quite a low proportion of the customer's cost base as well, that tends to lead to the the economics that I've already described. So, those are two key thought experiments for us. Who's the customer and what are they thinking about when they buy this product or service? And how difficult would it be to compete with this business? And that leads us, so those sort of, it's a checklist really in terms of both the quantitative factors and the qualitative factors, that leads us to an investable universe of companies that fit those criteria, both in the UK fund and the two global funds looking globally. And you know, for the global funds, that universe will be 150 companies, which will grow gradually over time as we add new ideas. And then from that, we assemble um, the portfolios, which tend to be between 30 to 40 holdings. So relatively focused portfolios, albeit quite diversified by sector, by business model, etc., but you know, there are clearly certain sectors that have more of the kinds of companies I've just described in them. So we do tend to be structurally biased towards what I'd call even load sectors. So things like technology, consumer branded goods, healthcare, some financial companies. But then there's other sectors that we don't tend to invest in. So obvious ones would be things like banks, insurers, which are you know low return businesses. Asset intensive companies as well that we don't invest in, so telecoms, utilities, mining, oil. So although we are looking across the globe, we do end up with a relatively focused list of companies that we get to know very, very well over time. You know, Often we've known them for 10 years or 20 years, and in my case often, and you really get to know the, the dynamics of those businesses and, and how they fared over time.
0: Now no one here wants to be put in a box a growth or value box, but it sounds to me like that process would probably lead you to the growthier end of the market to the sort of higher value end of the market. and I'm just curious to understand how does valuation discipline feed into your investment process and And maybe you can go back to that five percent dividend yielding company growing at ten percent a year you know, would you be willing to pay uh, if it was yielding 2% or, or 1%? And, and you can see that those earnings are compounding. Can you speak a little bit about your valuation discipline? Sure. Yeah. And I, I think
1: valuation is is an incredibly important part of what we do, the valuation management. I mean, if you boil it down, we're trying to buy good businesses at sensible valuations. And there are various ways we, we look at valuation. One is looking at the, the current free cash flow yield, so the the amount of cash that the business is generating relative to its share price after all sort of the investments it needs to make back in the business in terms of CapEx investment, working capital investment, et cetera. So that's an important metric. But we also have a sort of we estimate the forward free cash flow that we think the business can generate over time. And that gives us an estimate for what we think the forward return potential for that company will be in terms of the total annualised return. And with that metric, which we call the forward cash return, we can then compare all the different companies in our investable universe relative to each other, and then we look to bias the portfolio towards those that are more attractively valued. So, I think w- risk management is an incredibly important part of fund management. I think as I've got grayer and more years have gone by, I think when I started out, you know, back in two thousand and two three, I thought the main job of a fund manager was to find. Good companies, you know, companies that you like and you know, you, you sort of talk about the good aspects of a company. And I think the longer I've been an investor, you know, the clearer it becomes that there's no such thing as a perfect company or an imperfect investment. Every company has risks. And an important part of what we do is we manage those risks over time and we actually have a risk management framework. We use it when we're thinking about whether a company should come into the universe, but we also think about it when we're position sizing a company. So we have a maximum position size for each company in the portfolio. That's based on nine fundamental risk factors. So things like the strength of the economic moat, the long-term industry outlook, the quality of management, ESG risk, balance sheet strength, cash generation, etc. Diversification of the business. We also manage liquidity risk, which is obviously important So, how liquid are the shares that we invest in. But then valuation is, along with those risks, an incredibly important risk that we manage. But we, I think it's important to make the point that we think that valuation is one of the very important risks, not the only risk. <laughs> to take a very extreme example, you think of sort of Cisco in 2000, and actually Cisco is a company that's in the investable universes of the funds. But back in 2000, it was on 100 times P.E. Now Cisco has grown its free cash flow by something like eight percent per year since then. So for the last twenty years, so it's been a very good business over that time, but the total return's been zero percent over the last twenty years, and that's simply because it was so expensive when you know you started out in two thousand. So it is a reminder that you know even if a company is a very good business at the wrong valuation, it can be a poor investment. But it's also important to remember that you know a lot of the reasons that investments go bad is not because of valuation, it's because of fundamentals too. So those risks are very important to manage too.
0: How do you assess the, the risk of technological disruption to some of these companies that have what we see today have very strong economic moats? And I mean, to give an example of if you take the view that some of these big consumer names have strong economic moats as a result of their superb distribution network and strong branding... If you take the view that it's actually quite low cost now to build a brand on the internet, distribute it through Instagram, et cetera, how do you assess the strength of the incumbent economic moats of big brands? Yeah, and, and it's a question that we ask for
1: every business model that we, we look at. It's a very integral part of assessing both the economic moat strength and also the long-term industry outlook. So thinking about, as you say, technological disruption so will this product be rendered obsolete a bit like a company selling carriages for horses before the automobile came along so i think there's two key questions really what one is can something completely sort of left field come along that can place this company and the products and services it sells i think there's there tends to be the, the questions tend to be more nuanced ones where there's technological change within an industry And all industries have technological change, even, as you say, the more sort of stable, slow-moving sectors like consumer-branded goods. And there, the question tends to be more nuanced because there are risks that those changes create, but there's also opportunities and ways that companies can adapt to that over time. I mean, I've got a Financial Times from 1966, which is quite an interesting artifact, and it's fascinating to look in the share price section at the back. And it's interesting both how much has changed since then in the business world, but also what's remained somewhat the same. So there's all these sort of tea plantation companies that are quoted and there's a section for Sisal plantations, for example, which is obviously, are obviously long gone. And then there's other companies, whether it be, say, Smith and Nephew or It or Unilever that, that are there and have obviously remained listed companies over the last 55 years since that paper was published. And I actually think it's quite interesting to look at those businesses, all three of those businesses, you think of them as quite stable, operating mature industries. But Smith and Nephew back in 1966, would have mainly been selling wound dressings, for instance, and they made their franchise really in the First World War selling wound dressings to soldiers. And over the years, they have evolved their portfolio, you know, areas of their portfolio have become more commoditized and and they've moved on. And obviously there's a lot of technological change that had happened in the medical devices sector over the last few years, uh, well, the last 50, 60 years. Um, And today, you know, Smith & Nephew sell a lot of sort of orthopedic products and, you know, do a lot of, they have a very strong franchise in sports medicine, for instance, Um, and taking Reckit or Unilever. Unilever was a very different portfolio of products back in the 1960s it was you know a lot more of it would have been for instance margarine or soap and Reckitts was mainly a food company and today it's a health and hygiene company so I think it's partly the moat that the company has today but it's also the company's almost cultural and financial ability to
0: invest in the future to adapt over time So that's a really important point. And how does one assess that? I mean, are you looking at management and making sure that they're enhancing value for the company? And if so, what kind of questions are you asking to sort of tease that process out?
1: Yes. And I think, you know, in a way, the ideal company is a company where the competitive environment is fairly mature, but where the growth prospects for that industry are good. And you've got a business that's investing in a sensible way to take advantage of those growth prospects. And organic investment tends to be the sort of holy grail for the long-term investor. And if a company is able to invest, to expand from the existing positions, it strong positions it has in terms of its franchises incrementally over time, and perhaps do bolt-ons, then that tends to lead to quite interesting creation of shareholder value. i to mean, give you a couple of examples in the B2B business-business media sector, Relics, and the Dutch-listed company Volta's Kluwer, where they have transitioned from physical publishing businesses to primarily digital publishing businesses now. So they have some very good proprietary content, you know, things like academic publishing, but also business information products, which are primarily digital backed by subscription revenues and they have interesting content that they can develop but they can also build data analytics in which help their customers make better decisions be more efficient improve their own services to customers etc so that's an interesting example where the industry has transitioned and you know continues to transition and increasingly those digital products are moving to cloud etc but there's some really interesting opportunities for someone like Voltas or relics to take their existing content and digital analytics and invest in it organically, develop it and expand their markets and and their growth potential over time. So, yes, I think that that idea of company management teams who are willing to invest in growth is a very important one. I think to, to sort of flip that, there is risk that comes from management teams that get themselves into areas that might not be as attractive as the existing business. So to give you some historic examples, I think Guinness, obviously now held in the diageo portfolio back in the sort of 60s when conglomerates for fashionable started buying all kinds of other businesses i think it had a car polish business and a weak company for instance and so you can have a very good business but if management use capital to allocate towards a totally different area that has very different economics then that, that in itself would be a big risk i think procter and gamble decided to vertically integrate themselves in the 1970s and started buying oil and gas assets which didn't end particularly well and they ended up obviously exiting them so yes the, the allocation of capital by management is, is a very important factor to look at
0: and looking at your portfolios across all your funds it, it's it's striking to see that you know you have a good allocation to communication services to technology but what's missing i suppose or, or the question mark is that under allocation to the the sort of top knock your lights out Everybody's favorite FANG stocks. I wonder if you can just talk me through what the sort of process or how your process applies to analyzing those companies.
1: Yes, I think the clients have described our process as, as getting rich slowly. Some have uncharitably <laughs> described it as getting rich very slowly. Um, <laughs> we don't tend to, you know, the, the very sexy, very high growth companies, you know, perhaps. A technology company in a new area that might currently be growing at 20, 30, 40% per annum, you will normally find that that company may be in a, a market where we feel the competitive position is difficult to analyze in terms of how that market will ultimately play out. Because often, when new markets are initially created, it's quite difficult to analyze the moat. But even if the moat is very clearly strong, it's quite difficult to buy those businesses at valuations that provide attractive returns. Now, I'm absolutely not saying that that can't happen. And you know, we, as you say, we do invest in digital businesses, technology businesses, where we think the growth prospects are very good and where we also think the valuation appeal is, is attractive. So it is, as I said, it's an even load sector that we're interested in. But going back to the point on our valuation framework, there will be some areas of the technology sector which will appear more expensive to us than we would like in terms of the future prospects for for returns. So yeah, it, it goes back to that combination of we're not just looking for good
0: businesses that can grow, we're looking for them when they're at a valuation that makes sense to us. Now, ESG is clearly an important topic at the moment, and more and more of our clients are are talking about it. I wonder how do ESG factors, so environmental, social and governance factors, feed into your investment process? And do you, for example, negatively screen certain companies because you're taking an ethical stance on them?
1: Yeah, it's always been part of what we do. There's various different points in our process where it's important. So the the first one is looking at the inclusion in the investable universe. And as I described our risk framework, one of the key risks is ESG risk. And we score A to E for each of the risks for each company um, after testing it qualitatively. And clearly, if a business is scoring an E, for instance, then it's going to struggle to make it into our universe. I think there is a thing in terms of, if you think about ESG risk, it's one of the most important risks over the very long term so it doesn't always appear in the short term but basically if you're a company that's doing something that's detrimental to society then society may well punish you uh, as a company whether that's by regulation over time or higher taxes or whether it's by consumers moving away from your product so it's, it's definitely an important risk we then think about it in terms of the maximum position sizing framework within the portfolio. So, you know, if, if a business scores particularly well on ESG, then we, we may feel more comfortable with a slightly higher position versus a, a business scoring badly, all th- things being equal. But then once the company is actually held in the portfolio, obviously the engagement side of things becomes very important and we actively vote all AGMs, and we very regularly engage with company managements on various ESG aspects, which you know includes basic points on company strategy and capital structure, but obviously also the environmental and social side of the analysis. So for instance, we now disclose the carbon emissions for the portfolios annually. So you can look at the carbon emissions per pound invested for each company in the portfolio, and what that means at the overall portfolio level, uh, and that's an interesting jumping off point in terms of focus for us engaging with particular companies. I mean, a lot of the engagement in the last two or three years has been to do with disclosure because companies haven't been brilliant at disclosing their different scope emissions. But then obviously, if, if you've got bad companies from a carbon perspective, then that, that's, you know, a jumping off point for engagement. So there's, there's some sort of various ways in which ESG is integrated in a, into our process. Um, and we do see it as a very, very important risk factor. And we think our sort of role as capital allocators on behalf of our clients is quite an important part of the ecosystem in terms of ensuring that companies think
0: about the longer term and the sustainability of their business models. And Hugh, part of your investment process or central to your investment process is, is to try and find companies that have these economic modes that are hard to be disrupted. How do you assess the resilience of your own business? At even load, and particularly with reference to the threat of of passive strategies, so just buying an ETF rather than buying your fund, which is actively managed.
1: Yeah, it's it's a good question, and we, you know, I think there's a, a very important role that passives can play along with active funds in anyone's portfolio. And you know, I'm a big fan of Jack Bogle, who was the founder of Vanguard, and he had a lot of very sensible things to say. About investment, um, I think you know we do have an active management strategy. We manage risk very carefully in the portfolios. The, the even load approach is a very different approach to what you get from the market index. Our active shares very very high because of the way we invest. The volatility profile does tend to be lower than the market over time, and the relative performance tends to be better in more difficult markets. And I think. I hope that it's quite easy for investors to understand what we do as well. And we, we, we do try and communicate as clearly as we can. And I hope that both of those factors, so the sort of the low risk profile of the funds and the understanding of the, the investor base help, particularly through more difficult market phases, sort of investors almost through those periods, if you like, rather than it being a sort of slightly opaque set of companies that are, that are harder to understand. We run two income funds, so that's the income side of, of, of management that we do, um, which, you know, we, we're trying to very much, one of the key objectives for both income funds is deliver good, real, so sort of inflation protected growth in the dividend stream over the longer term, which is which is important. But I think, you know, we, we've got also got a continually improving mindset. We've always wanted to sort of look ahead and think about how we can adapt and grow as a team. Um, as I said, we're now uh, 23 of us with 13 on the investment team. And we're always wanting to make sure we continue to improve, both in terms of the way we communicate to clients and the way that we invest.
0: And so, looking to the future and taking out that crystal ball, what do you think your your portfolio is going to look like in five years' time? And and do you think that you know there are areas of your portfolio that you look at and think, Crikey, you know this is the highest up the risk spectrum in terms of being disrupted. It will evolve. I mean, our portfolios have always
1: evolved over time. We we tend to make fairly incremental changes and they'll be based on both fundamental and valuation risk. I think our turnover rate has been a bit less than 20% since launch. So that gives you a sense our average holding period is five years or more for each company. So there will be change. I, I think, you know, in terms of our proposition to clients, the the portfolios will still be full of market leading businesses that have the asset like sort of cash generative economics that I've described and that are operating in markets where we think the the prospects for growth are good and the shares are valued in a way that that we think the valuation risk is low. Um, So that won't change. But you're right, you know, businesses do change over time and disruption comes along and the moat erodes and perhaps the capital allocation decisions aren't always perfect or the company might buy another business and, you know, take on a lot of debt, which can hugely increase the risk profile of the company, particularly if it's economically cyclical. So, you know, we, we we have always removed companies over the years for fundamental risk reasons. And I'm sure that process will continue over coming years, but it does, as I say, tend to be more Mm -hmm. evolutionary rather than revolutionary.
0: I see. And I think, you know, one, spot of your portfolio that is you know you're consistently underweight is asia can you see that allocation changing yeah it's an interesting question if you look at our sort of underlying revenue exposure
1: across the funds and this includes uk fund, which always has more than 80 percent the funding uk listed businesses actually the exposure to asian revenues is is, is reasonably material and the same goes for the broader emerging market space it tends to be that the exposure we've had has come through sort of US and European listed businesses. Clearly, the emerging markets and you know some of the sectors that we invest in, in terms of say consumer branded goods or digital business models, there's, there's huge potential for growth, structural growth to come from those categories as emerging market consumption increases over time, and it won't be in a straight line. And if you've got a business that's able to capture that that already has a good presence and a good brand strength in those markets, then you know that can be a very compelling proposition. But yes, you're right. We, we haven't tended to invest in sort of directly listed, say, Asian shares or Latin American shares. And that goes back to really circle of competence. And we want to make sure we're investing in companies where we understand the, the governance structure, we have good access to the companies, et cetera, and historically, we've tended to find most of our ideas in the sort of US and European listed markets.
0: Mm-hmm. Final question, Hugh. What what advice we have? A lot of younger uh, listeners to this podcast. What advice would you be giving to them, the analysts and associates, or perhaps who are coming out of university at the moment who who have just started out in their career in investment management? And um, what advice would you give to them, given your experience in the industry? Yeah, I
1: would definitely recommend reading a lot. I think. Reading widely is helpful, so partly on investment and economics. And I think financial history is really good. I think that the zeitgeist of the investment community is often very focused on what's just happened, say, over the last six months, but also what might happen in the next three to six months. And I think reading financial history is really good at contextualizing a current period and reminding you how much environments can change over time. But more broadly, you know, business biography, science, innovation, behavioral psychology, as I said, philosophy, historic books are very interesting too. As is often said, the further you look back in history, the more you can look into the future. So I think that, you know, building up a, a map of different mental models, if you like, is very helpful for investment because it's so, it encompasses so many different elements of, of the world. And I think from a sort of career perspective, you need to find a way to invest that you are comfortable with. And in a way, you need to find an environment in which you can work that you're also comfortable with and that wants to invest in the way that you feel you'd like to invest. So I think from a sort of work experience perspective, that can be really helpful for, for people just to, because there are lots of different ways that you can work in investment management and you know, a job in a big investment bank in New York or London will be feel very different than working in the even barn in West Oxford. I know um, where I'd prefer to work for a nice walk <laughs> down the footpath at lunchtime with the dog. Um, but you know, there isn't huge options in terms of the bars at walking distance after the work is finished at, uh, on a Friday evening. So I think you, it's it's worth trying to, you know, even if it's a day's work experience here or there, Uh, it's very helpful to understand what the job actually involves and what the different types of roles you could potentially
0: take are. Hugh Yarrow, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Hugh Yarrow from Evenload Investment. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not like it or subscribe to the series? Thank you the information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.